This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Our Father in heaven, I ask a gift from you that you would make the Holy Bible to be understandable to us. That you would do this by your Holy Spirit. I thank you for this gift and I ask for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> the title of this lecture is something like this, that the everlasting gospel should be easy to understand. I just have a burden that if you don't understand anything else besides this lecture, that at least you will get this one. Because you could get the idea that 1888 is really complicated. Do you know how the devil creates that kind of, um, that kind of situation? He leads intelligent, studious people to argue. And when intelligent, studious people argue, people who view themselves as simple-minded conclude that it must not be possible for them to get it. Have any of you ever felt kind of that way? Like, you can't get it? I don't even see one hand. I guess you must be the intelligent people to argue. And, um, <clears throat> okay, let's say. But I hope that if you are going to be witnessing to your family and to your neighbors that you have a gospel that is simple enough for you in your own life to use. Do you know if your own feet aren't firmly set on the rock Christ Jesus that you're not going to be able to pull anyone out of the swift running current? Like the current that's moving by and taking people down to perdition? You can't if your feet aren't set, you can't get them out. The gospel that you present for the saving of the lost must be the same gospel by which your own soul is saved. It just won't work any other way. I'm thinking right now of a couple stories about Ellen White's experience as an evangelist. She talked about a woman in Australia that was cumbered with a large family, eight children. And she said that she needed something simple, something that the soul could grasp, something that she could understand. This lady had been attending one of our evangelistic meetings. And would you like to hear a summary of her, of her reflection on the meetings? They were wonderful, but she couldn't really get them except she thought the Sabbath, it seemed like something important that she should believe in. Aren't you glad that God has given as a test of the world something as simple as counting to seven? Something that simple people can get just like other people can get? God hasn't picked. If you know someone who thinks the world is going to be tested over some pet theory, and that pet theory takes uh, many hours to understand, let me tell you, it isn't so. Because God is going to test a lot of people who would never be able to even comprehend the arguments. But they, could, they know the difference between right and wrong and obedience and disobedience. Between trust 
and unbelief. And God is going to... So we're going to talk a bit about the simple gospel, but before we even get to that, I want to talk to you about some more complicated things. It's history. History has a wax nose. Do you know what I mean by saying history has a wax nose? I mean that uh, Leroy Moore and I are talking about 1888. And we could use the very same history to teach very different conclusions. And we even believe pretty much the same. Find some people who believe very different than us, and they're going to teach 1888 to teach a very different conclusion. When I was studying with the Seventh-day Adventist Reform Movement, for example, they had a lot of material about 1888. And the fourth angel. It would be kind of like this lecture combined with the the fourth angel lecture, you know. Um, many, many movements that have risen in our church have claimed to be that fourth angel message of Revelation 18. Now, if you've never, if you don't know what I'm talking about, fourth angel, uh, that's just the way Adventists refer to Revelation 18 because we have those three angels in Revelation 14. And the reason... Like, maybe this is too simple to show you, but I want you to see it. Look at Revelation 14. Sometimes simple things hit the spot. Because you won't find the phrase, three angels' messages, anywhere in the Bible. But when you look down at verse 9, it says, and the what angel? So if the third angel is the third angel, then the one in verse 8 must be what? The second angel. And if the one in verse 8 is the second angel, then the one in verse 6 must be what? That's where we get the three angels' messages. Does that make any sense to you what I'm saying? It's important to get it because there are angels before this in Revelation, there are angels after this in Revelation. And if you wonder why do we separate these three, well, that's it. Because the third one is called the third one. And uh, so they go together, and you notice these three messages come just before the harvest? That's what happens in the last half of this chapter. So you have the messages, then the harvest. It gives you an idea that maybe this is the message we read about in Matthew 24. The message that must go to the whole world and then the end will come. Well, here we find a message that goes to the whole world and then what happens? The end comes. Do you see the correlation between the two? Revelation 14 is commentary on Matthew 24. When you go to Revelation 18, you can just do that because it's only three pages away, right? Revelation 18, when you look at verse 2, it reminds you of the second angel's message. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. The difference between Revelation 18 and the second angel's message is that in the three angels' messages, the first one is given with power, the second one doesn't mention any power, and the third one is given with power. It's like the first angel says with a loud voice, the second angel says, and the third angel says with a loud voice. Well, now when we get here, what happens in verse 2? Is it with a loud voice? 
So you have now the second angel's message is also given with power. Now look back at verse 1. An angel came down from heaven having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. This idea, brothers and sisters, can launch you on the most incredible Bible study. It's a prophecy that occurs in six other places in the Bible, in different words, but always in a similar idea that the knowledge of the Lord is going to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea, that the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. One of those is in Isaiah 6, for example, that famous one, Here am I, send me. Uh, there are just a number of these prophecies. The first one was given to Moses. All the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. Well, here we have it. Does this remind you of the first angel's message? Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment is come. Here you see the angel come and the earth is lightened with the glory of God. Now my brother who is here, the one who brought to us this generous uh, offer uh, to get a free copy of this beautiful book, he reminded me during our intermission that I wouldn't want to lead men to trust in me as a teacher any more than I would want them to trust in someone else. I say amen to that. What I really enjoyed in our last evangelistic series with Chad Cruiser is that every single night, Chad would in some way say, don't take my word for it, take the Bible. But then there was a lady right in front of me at one meeting who after he presented about the mark of the beast, she turned around to me and said, that's your opinion. Well, it is my opinion, but that's not why I'm asking you to believe it. Why would I ask you to believe it? Because it's written. Now, this is a good way to preface what I'm about to say. Because Wieland is no longer living. This is Robert Wieland. And Donald Short is no longer living. And I suppose Sequera is living, Jack Sequera. But I haven't kept up. Is he in here? Okay, all right. <clears throat> okay, okay, all right. Just, just curious. I, so he is living. We have it on good testimony of someone who knows. But none of them are here to defend themselves. And when I'm going to tell you where I differ with them, they're not even here to say if I misrepresent them. Plus, the two that are deceased were very studious men. What if they're right and I'm wrong? Are you just going to believe me? I, you know, if you do, that really sets you up. Because if I'm wrong, I could, get more and more, I could become more wrong and more wrong yet. That could even happen if I'm right. I'm just trying to affirm what my brother had to say. That when you listen to history... You must remember it has a wax nose.
And when you listen to a Bible study, you must study for yourself to see if the thing is so. You must go after it for yourself. If I cannot persuade you to go after it, and by persuade, I don't mean persuade you intellectually. I mean to be so successful that you actually do it. That's what I mean by persuade. There's a difference, right? Like, I'm sure I can persuade you that you should. Aren't you all persuaded already? But that's not the same thing, right? If I don't succeed in persuading you, and I don't mean the whole burden's on me. I think there's 100 people here that would have the same burden. But this is my turn. If I don't succeed in getting you to study it for yourself, I don't even think it's going to work out for you. Even if I'm right, I don't think it's going to work out for you. In other words, just to hear the truth isn't going to do it. Because to be settled, you have to put down some of your own roots in the good soil. If you don't put down your own roots, then when the drought comes, uh, do you remember what Jesus said about the plants in the shallow soil? Do you know they rejoiced when they, they just rejoiced in the truth? When they hear it, they love it. They like it. They like it. They're audioverse fans. That these are the people who just really get into the truth. I mean, get into it, but only to a certain extent. They get into it to hear it. But they don't go to the extent to look into it. And if you don't look into it, at some point you're going to be deluded. I'm thinking of the great controversy. I want to say it's page 232, but that's because that's in the MAGA book edition. And uh, I don't know what it is in a regular edition, but it's, it's the chapter, The Scripture's a Safeguard. It says, Antichrist is soon to perform his marvelous works in our eyes. So closely will the counterfeit resemble the true, that if it were possible, even the elect would be deceived. I think I got that right. It says something about the Scriptures being the only way we can avoid that, the study of the Scriptures. Someone was going to finish it for me? Yeah, that's the name of the chapter. Yes, the Scripture's a safeguard. So <clears throat> all that preface was to say that even though I'm going to tell you what I really think, I'm, am I asking you to trust me? No. Did you get it? Here's what I think went wrong with Wheeland and Short. Who are they initially? These were two young ministers, missionaries in Africa, Interestingly, that's also where uh, Jack Sequeira was. In fact, they met each other over there, if I'm not mistaken. And um, these young ministers found in testimonies to ministers, among other places, some very strong statements. Have you ever read testimonies to ministers? You read it, you'll find some strong statements. Like one you'll find is that the brethren were, were doing Baal worship in Minneapolis. Would anyone witness that I didn't just make that up? Say? Baal is the choice. That Baal worship is what Ellen White used to describe what happened there in Minneapolis. And it looked to these young men like what happened there was just terrible and 
And it looked to them like, as a people, we ought to, you know, we ought to be sorry. Shouldn't you be sorry? I'm thinking of Daniel 9 right now. Daniel 9 is an incredible chapter. Not only does it predict when Jesus is going to come, but in Daniel 9, when Daniel prays, you would think he was a very wicked man. Have any of you ever read what he says there in Daniel 9? He doesn't sound like a good guy. He talks like he is part and parcel with a rebellious nation. You can do that. I can do that. Daniel wasn't like a leader of Israel when he did that. He was in a secular position. He was a prophet, but I don't think that's even relevant to this. Daniel prayed as if he was part of the people who had for so long turned their backs on what God wanted to do. I'm part of the people who've turned their backs for so long on what God wants to do. Also, I can recognize in my own life in ways that I don't need to tell you that many times in my own life, God had, had advancement for me and I turned away from it for something lesser. So when I include myself, it's not like I'm including a white dove among a bunch, a bunch of black bunnies. In other words, when Daniel included himself, I think it was probably the same for him, that he recognized that he also was a weak man. Do you think Daniel recognized he was a weak man? I mean, he fell prostrate when he was confronted with the glory of God. Daniel prays in Daniel 9 in a way that shows that he feels responsible for what's going on. I hate how little I pray like Daniel 9. It's like any other truth that it gets my attention when it has my attention. Like when I read Daniel 9 is when I tend to pray like Daniel 9. But does God require that we remember? He does require that we remember some things. You remember what he said in Matthew 16 when, when the when his disciples were complaining because they didn't have any bread, and he had said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. He said, don't you remember the 4,000 and the 5,000? He showed that he expects us to remember. And what I'm saying to you is that we want to pray and take responsibility. So I'm affirming right now something that, that these two young pastors in Africa came to, and that is that we want to to take responsibility for these things. And in fact, they developed, I'm really making a short, a big history. So you want the long version? It's not even in here because this is about Jones and Wagner. But uh, you could find it in a book, 1888 Reexamined, which I'm sure is in print today. I'm sure it is, right? These men decided to get the attention of the General Conference and the idea that they had, one idea that they had is that if they could get this most wonderful message and even the terrible message about the mistakes we had made in the hands of the brethren, that the brethren would, would repent. How closely is repentance related to Christ and our righteousness? 
no further apart than your knuckle is from your finger. It's part of it. You don't have Christ and His righteousness without repentance. And in Revelation 3, when Jesus speaks to us individually, but also to us as a people, He says to us as a people that we are naked. Do you know what it means to be naked as a church? It's not a pretty picture. It's kind of like those statues right outside the door here. <laughs> right? It's, a, it's, it's nasty. And when, when he says that to us as a church, that we're naked, it means that as a church, at least if you speak of us as a whole, we are not covered with Christ's righteousness. Now, if you want to get an idea about Christ and His righteousness that might kind of blow your mind. I think I should share it with you. Look at Micah. Micah chapter, I think it's 6. Micah is just before Nahum. Micah chapter 6, well, maybe it's chapter 5. Let me just find it. While you're there, I'll find it. I'll tell you what it says. Oh, it's in chapter 6, verse 5. That explains the confusion in my head. You know, 6 and 5. Micah 6, 5 says, O my people, you remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted, And what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. Suppose you wanted to understand the Lord and his righteousness. Is there an Old Testament story that you might look at that might give you insights into the Lord and his righteousness, according to the passage? What story would that be? Now, that doesn't even seem like one you would naturally go to for this, does it? But to save time, because I know I'm short, and I'm going to tell you what you find when you'll go there. You'll find that when Balaam was speaking under inspiration, he said that I have not beheld iniquity in Israel. That's amazing. Then he said, the shout of a king is among them. Did Israel have a king? Only if you mean the Lord Jesus. So what was Balaam seeing was here was a people that were covered as a whole with Christ's righteousness. That wouldn't save any one of them individually unless they had an individual experience. But it was a reference to the people as a whole, what God would do with the people as a whole. And it, because some things God does with the people as a whole. You know, as a whole, they're either going to go into Canaan or they're not. That's not done individually. Does that make sense to you what I'm saying? Some things are done together. And as a whole, they're going to take part in Baal Peor or they're not. So as a whole, God did not behold iniquity in Israel. But Balaam seemed to figure out some conclusions from what he saw. And the way to remove that protection was to introduce sin into the camp. What you're looking at here is the righteousness of the Lord. That's what Micah said we ought to study for it, right? We ought to understand that right. Uh, what I'm trying to communicate to you is that there is 
a place for us together being sorry for what we've done. I don't think that is the mistake of Wheeland and Short when they came to that conclusion. I think they were right there. And they, I think they did have too high a concept of church order that prevented them in getting the material before the people. But God overruled that situation and the material went before the people regardless. Like they didn't intend to distribute 1888, that message, I mean the, their manuscript, but it did get distributed. One of the copies was read by Herbert Douglas, recently deceased, and it was a life-changing experience for him. What I think these brethren missed that kind of led them on a goose chase was the way that truth works. It's the idea that you see in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Why don't you turn there for a minute. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 and 2. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also you received, and wherein you stand. You know, you can find a very simple presentation of the gospel in verses 3 through 7 here. We might look at that later in this hour. But look at verse 2. By which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. That's what unless means in that verse 2. Otherwise you have believed in vain. In other words, even though in verse 1 you accepted the gospel, you received it, even though you're standing in it in verse 1, the gospel still will be powerless to save you unless you hold on to it. Unless it has your attention, unless you keep it in mind, the fact that Jesus shed his blood for me really softens my heart when I think about it. And it doesn't when I don't. The gift that Jesus made when he humbled himself and became a man that just really puts my whole experience in perspective when I think about it. But everything gets out of proportion when I don't. The fact that there's a judgment going on in heaven right now and that Jesus pleads his blood in behalf of those who are overcomers, when I think about that, it really it weakens the effect of temptation in my life. But when I don't think about it, it doesn't. What Wheeland and Short were looking for in the message of Jones and Wagner was the secret ingredient. What is it in what they shared? Wheeland even talked to me about this. What is it in what they shared? What is the thing that was an improvement or a change or what made it unique or what made it special? What was it? And that is when they found, not in 1888 or even 1889, but later, when they found some references in Jones and Wagner that when they talked about Romans chapter 5 and a few other passages, like I'm thinking right now about uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, which is right here. Why don't we look at it? Are you still in 1 Corinthians 15? <clears throat> look at verse 22. 
or maybe we should go to verse 21. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards they that are Christ at his coming, then comes the end, that would be after the thousand years, when he will have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For Jesus must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. So I think you see there that everyone is going to be resurrected. Christ was the first. It's not even referring to things like Moses. That's not relevant to the picture here. Jesus was first in time and in priority. And in him, that is, because of our relation to him, because of what he's done, everyone else is going to be resurrected too. When I get to heaven, I'll find out if this is true, but here's what I understand right now. I think if it wasn't for the gospel, there never would have been a resurrection to face the lake of fire. I think if it wasn't for the gospel, our first death would have been the end of things. That would have been it. It's because we have spurned the Spirit it's because we have hardened our hearts. It's because a sacrifice was made and we turned our back on it. That's why we need to stand and answer. In other words, our sin is inexcusable because of the gospel. So in relation to Jesus, all are going to be resurrected. Those that are Christ at his coming, which implies those that aren't Christ are not going to be at his coming. Do you see the implication in that? And so that's how we correlate it with Revelation where it says the others are after the thousand years. And that's when he puts down all authority. That's when the last enemy to be destroyed is death. I should be talking about history, but I just much prefer Bible study. <clears throat> what Jones and Wagner hit on was an idea that has been called by some people legal justification or forensic justification. It is an idea that not everyone who teaches it understands it the same way as those that really enjoy being taught it. Because to some extent, it involves metaphors being used in a non-metaphorical way. But I'm going to just tell it to you how I understand it, and then there are other people in this room you could talk to to see how they understand it. And I think that's fair. The idea that Jones and Wagner taught is that we were in some, they wouldn't use the, way, the word metaphysical, but I will, in some metaphysical way we were in Christ. So that when he died, we died also. And that when we died in him, well, that paid for our sins. So we are justified in a certain sense, in a legal sense. And that isn't just you and I, that's everyone in the whole planet has that experience. And then when you accept the gospel, that's when you have justification by faith. And even if we live in short, we're here alive, 
they would agree with me that no one is saved until they have justification by faith. That they would all agree with that. that they wouldn't, but I think that they confused people more than they intended to by teaching that there's a justification that we all have universally. I have an article that there's a reference to it in your, in your GYC uh, program. And it has, you can go to the GYC website and get my article on this. You can even go to my own website and get it too, bibledoc.org. It's, it's called something like forensic justification or legal justification. I'll tell you what I do in that article. I go through all of the times the word justified or justification or just or any related word I can think of is used in the entire Bible. I go through them all. And I divide them up into two categories. One category that most certainly refers to justification by faith. And one category that is perhaps questionable. Now, I don't want you to think the categories are equally sized. If this represents the ones that are most certainly about justification by faith, and I'm discounting the ones that talk about justifying yourself and all those kind of things. Does that make sense what I'm saying? None of the ones, only the ones that relate to salvation here. If these are the ones that talk about uh, justification by faith, these would be the ones that could, to some extent, be questionable. Like the only one in my head right now is Romans 5.18. And what I present there is from the writings of Jones and Wagner and from the prophets and from Ellen White, I think abundant evidence that we ought to use the word justification the same way it's used all over inspiration to refer to the experience that happens when a man is justified by faith. But do I discount by that the idea that some things were done universally? No. Did Jesus pay for all our sins? Why, he sure did. I don't think it was in any metaphysical way. I think it was in a substitutionary way. That Jesus took my sins on him. That when, when Hebrews talks about Levi paying tithes in Abraham, it's a metaphor. It says, and as I may so say, in the King James, that Levi paid tithes in Abraham to Melchizedek. And as I may so say, that's just another way of saying as an illustration or in metaphor. It is such, it is a mistake to take that, that metaphor and extrapolate it into a metaphysical reality that says that whatever your great-great-grandparents have done, you have done also. And uh, I think that was a mistake. I'm not faulting these men heavily for going this way because truly Jones and Wagner both got into these kind of ideas to some extent in the 1890s and after. I'm not. I think where they made a mistake was in looking for that, that special thing when they could have looked at the whole thing. And if you look at the whole thing of what Jones and Wagner were teaching, it's justification by faith. It's about Christ and his righteousness experienced in the experience of accepting. It's really, that's what it's about. 
Did I make it clear enough that there's another side of this coin that it's fair for you to look at? I'll say it one more time. I don't want anyone here to feel like that I'm trying to get a monopoly on this, but you ought to read my article if you haven't read it yet, if you're going to read the other side. You want to ask or you want to say? Yeah, and this is a very good, good transition to the last part of the message. So let me just do it, to the simple gospel. The simple gospel, so simple that anyone can understand it, is that we put our will on Christ's side of the question. When we do that, when we live by his word, there's lots of ways we could say it. We could say we, we take him at his word, we depend on him when we put our will on Christ's side in dependence on him, when we come to him like a child and put our hand in his hand, do you know, it's when you walk with a child across the street and you hold the child's hand, you might tell the child to hold on to you, but really his safety is not dependent on that. <clears throat> because you hold to him much more firmly than he holds to you. Isn't that true? It is the same way when you put your hand into the hand of God. He holds to you more firmly than you can hold to Him. When you put your hand in the hand, when you put yourself on Christ's side of the question, that is faith, and that is counted for righteousness. It's that simple. It's that. When you, we can get all our fancy theories of the gospel, and we can't make anyone understand it, and we don't even understand it ourselves, but this we can get. Put your will on Christ's side of the question. What comes after that simple gospel are some other simple helps. Like, for example, why in the world would you even want to do that? Why would you put yourself on Christ's side of the question? Well, there is some simple ideas that Jesus, the creator of the universe, by the power and will of God, loves you, and he died to give you a chance. He took your sins on him so you would not have to pay for them with death. That simple gospel, that love of Jesus, pushes you. This was a great thing that Lyndon Short taught about the motive power of love. Paul taught it too, right? He said the love of God constrains us in that old English King James Version. The love of God is pushing us. The love of God is the reason that we would, for example, put our will on Christ's side of the question. We could love God without understanding his love. And it would still work out if we put our will on his side. And we could end up... Uh, submitting to God's Spirit without even knowing that God's Spirit exists. Have you read that in Romans 2? For when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, this is verses 13 through 15, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written. That's interesting. The work of the law is written. Where is it written? You know, that's the new covenant. Gentiles can have a new covenant experience 
that don't even know. The Spirit can write the law in their heart. Well, it's not going to happen to many of them because our wicked hearts are not that sensitive. And if we don't have the motive power of the love of Jesus to move us, not many are going to move. And the devil has enough deceptions and worldliness in the world today, a strong enough current, that even though there is some hope for people in very dark places, if no one goes to preach to them, there isn't a lot of hope for them. Does that make sense to you what I'm saying? They have a chance because God's glory is apparent in the creation. They have a chance, but all the odds are pushing against them, and we really ought to do what we can to help. My brother. Let me say what you're saying because you're not being recorded right now. Uh, so John 1 talks about a light that lightens the whole world. And it's, it really says that Jesus is the true light that lights the whole world. But of course, the Spirit is the one that makes those impressions on the heart. The Spirit is even the one that tries to impress you with the love of Jesus in Calvary. And really, it's a difficult thing sometimes for the Spirit because we think about so much blood and gore and problems and news that we become callous. Do any of you sense how callous you are? It's terrible. But the Spirit really tries to motivate us and move us with this love. There's something more. Why would you trust God? How do you know He has your best interest in mind? There's a lot of truth about this in the Bible, a lot of evidence that you can trust Him. Do you know even Daniel 2 is good for this? Daniel 2 and 7 and 9, a prophecy gives you a lot of confidence in His wisdom. The story of the cross gives you a lot of confidence in His interest. Thinking about the fact that hummingbirds exist, it will really do you good. It's like therapy if you think about it long enough. There's a lot of evidence that God cares for you and is trustworthy. What I'm trying to say is there's a very simple gospel but it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger with as many components and insights and beauties as you have time to consider. But all of them, let's not call them extra or extraneous. They're all beautiful. But can the simple-minded man make it? He can. He can put his will on Christ's side. Jesus gave his life for him. He first loved us, therefore we love him. Uh, because... He gave his life for us. We ought to be willing to lay down our life for our brother. Would someone tell me the time right now? 3.40 which? Oh, good. Praise God. Felt to me like I was out of time. I was, I was feeling badly. So I haven't mentioned Sequera at all, except to say I was going to mention him. <clears throat> um... Wheeland and Short, what they picked up in this issue of forensic justification, really, Sequera took it further. And I remember, as a freshman in college, which was the only year I was in college, so I remember when I was in college, reading a book by Sequera, 
I don't even, it might have just been a magazine article. I don't remember anything about what it was titled at all. But I remember coming across an idea that just made me break down in tears and just really touched me. It was related to Jesus when he was going to Calvary. The fact that he could not see through the portal of the tomb. The, the fact that while he couldn't see through the portal of the tomb, that during that same time, he chose to take my sin on him. In other words, that Jesus chose to take my sin on him at a time when as far as he knew, it would forever lead to his death. That still touches me. It's a beautiful truth. Oh, sure it is. And the beautiful things I found in Wheeland and Short are in Jones and Wagner and are in Ellen White. And in fact, I find them in the Bible. I find them best in the Bible. And so it is sad for me to say that I think that three men who did so much, even for me, that every one of them added to the beautiful things they taught me some things that just weren't so. And I can even easily believe that they will be in heaven and will be surprised to find out that they were wrong in those things. And I suppose maybe they can believe that I'll be there and be surprised to find out I was wrong about them. I sat down with Wieland in his own home, this might be nine or ten years ago, talking about the executive judgment after the thousand years when the wicked are burned in the lake of fire. That's become an issue again because of Tim Jennings. And it never ceased to be an issue because of Maxwell, Graham Maxwell, and Drs. Cole. But I was sitting there talking to Wieland about this because I'd heard a rumor about him that I just couldn't credit. It didn't seem to me like it could be true. And I, the way, if I hear a rumor about you, I'll probably talk to you about it before I talk to anyone else about it. But if you confirm it, I might talk to them too. <laughs> and what happened here with Wieland is I'd heard that he said that the only sin that people are going to burn for in the lake of fires for the sin of unbelief. What Wieland was saying, according to the rumor, is that since Jesus died for my lies and my thefts and my Sabbath breaking and my covetousness and my uh, whatever else, that there's no way that I can die for those sins in the lake of fire. They've already been paid for. So the only sin Wieland was saying that Jesus didn't die for is unbelief. I think if Wieland was alive and he was here, he would clarify ultimate unbelief. Because so I think he would believe that you could be unbelieving today and then you could repent and believe tomorrow. I'm sure, he would, I'm sure that he believed that. But ultimate unbelief. But that's not true. It's very clear in the Bible that those who are lost will be judged according to their works. And very clear in Ezekiel that if you turn away from your righteousness, that all that what you're going to die for is those sins in which you, you've sinned. 
it's, it's very clear that in the great provision Jesus made for me, he never gave me a free pass from consequences. He made a provision for me to escape consequences, but it was on some conditions. And when Jones said even some true things, but in a way that indicated, when Jones said truly that there are no conditions about some things, Ellen White faulted him for using the phrase no conditions because it would confuse people. And they might think that there's no conditions in a way that's wrong. And uh, so are there any conditions to whether Jesus paid for my sin? There are no conditions to that. He paid. Are there conditions to whether or not uh, I benefit from it? Well, don't answer. There are no conditions to the fact that I benefited from that. Before I took any interest, I could breathe and had a chance to live. That's a beautiful benefit. Do you realize what a gift probation is? That, like, if you think probation isn't special, I've heard people denigrate probation like it's not really a very precious gift. But that's what Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. Before they sinned, they had probation. And when they sinned, you know what they lost? They lost probation. They lost a chance to develop a character by obedience to Christ's commands. What Jesus purchased for me again is probation. And I have it. How long does my probation last? typically, ideally, it lasts until I die. But if I receive a flood of light and turn from it, it could end sooner. Does that make sense to any of you what I just said? Ideally, it lasts until I die. But it could end sooner if I turn away from a flood of light over a period of time. That's happened to a lot of people. The summary of all I've said today is that there is a beautiful gospel about Jesus. It's really simple. Put your will on Christ's side of the question. Don't hold on to any sin. There are confusing things in my life where I just wonder. Like things in my life, how about I just be real open and talk to you about a couple of them because maybe you can relate. Oh, I just might perplex you. Let me just think for a minute. I think I'm not going to. It's because I'm thinking right now of a couple things that probably not anyone in here except me would think are wrong. And I'm not sure. I'll get to you in just a minute, brother. We want to be sure that we're dealing plainly with ourselves on this issue of putting ourselves on Christ's side of the question. We, of course, to put your will on Christ's side you can't do that without repenting. That, that Really, repentance is the same thing. Repentance is an act of faith. Repentance is when you take at His Word what God says about you. When I take at God's Word what He says about me, about how... So you remember what Jesus said? The just shall live by... Jesus didn't say that, but He said it through Habakkuk and through Paul. The just shall live by faith. Then what Jesus said is man shall live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, those have to be the same thing. Yeah, the man that covers his sins isn't going to prosper. So, so here you have two ideas. One is that the way to live is to live by every word of God. What's the other one? The way to live is by faith. What's well, the same thing? That faith is living by every word of God. It's putting yourself on Christ's side. And when you 
the simple gospel is the one that gives you courage. Christ's love, his willingness to forgive, his trustworthiness, the, his righteousness and requiring you to obey. These things, all these things, these this simple ideas are the ones that keep pushing you. They're the ones that keep you moving towards the kingdom. If you turn away from those things, I, that's the wrong, that's not even what I'm trying to say. If you, if those things become to you like a first grade exercise and you become exercised in other things so that you stop thinking about those things, your own courage will be displaced with arrogance. You will become strong for something, but it won't be for the gospel. And you will be useful, you think to God, but you'll really be useful to yourself only. No, Paul says you even are against yourself. Have you read that? He talks about those who oppose themselves. You'll even oppose yourself. I have only a minute left or so, but you want to say something, brother? Okay. I'm, I want to read it. I affirm all that you've said on that. And let me just say it again in my own words for the recording. Jones' sermons in the general conference meetings, you can find many of them in these publications uh, of the general conference bulletins, are beautiful presentations, most of it from the Bible, some from the spirit of prophecy, some from history, beautiful materials. And, uh, and I can affirm what the verses in Hebrews 10 say that is, if you turn away from the light of the gospel, on top of all your other sins, you've added a horrible one, that you've counted as an unholy thing, the blood of Jesus. And that certainly is going to be the, the most shameful thing to face in the judgment. There won't be any sin like that one that will make people red in the face, No, I think pale is the word used, black is the word used, that it'll be black in the face that is just dark when people realize how they have treated lightly the blood of Jesus. All right, thank you for coming. Uh, there's another presentation tomorrow and then another one on Sabbath. I appreciate you all. Don't forget to read the articles uh, that are mentioned in your bulletin because you don't have them to read any other way. Let's kneel for a prayer and we'll be done. Our Father in heaven, I want to recognize publicly while speaking to you that the blood of your Son Jesus is precious and holy, that there is no excuse for treating it lightly, 
or even for willfully transgressing any one of your just commands. Would you please teach us how to present a gospel to the world that they can comprehend? And I ask for each one here that you'd give us an experience, that you would set our own feet firmly on that rock that is represented by your son, Jesus. I ask that you would finish the work you've started in our life. In the name of Jesus, amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at the cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.